I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. I am the owner of Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We're currently speaking with practice owners about partnering or acquiring some or all of their practice. And if you are looking to potentially sell or exit your practice in the next couple of years, one of the big components is how to find a lawyer, how to find a specialist, how to use a law firm, as opposed to using your relative who is like a prosecutor or someone that's a non-MA specialist attorney to help you with selling your practice and going through some of all of this process. And today we have Sam Kajay on the show. We're going to talk about legal mistakes to avoid when buying or selling your physical therapy practice. We're going to be focusing more on the sell side for practice owners that are watching or listening. They're looking to potentially exit in the next one to three years. Uh, Sam, give yourself a little bit of a background. You are an M&A transaction attorney. A little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into today's topic. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. So yes, my name is Sam Kajay. I'm the owner of a law firm called SK Legal. SK Legal focuses on a 50-50 blend of corporate, commercial, and M&A law. So the M&A side is what we're going to be talking about. I've been practicing law for about 13 years now in Canada, in cross-border transactions to the U.S., and in the Middle East, in Dubai. And I've worked for some of the largest law firms in the world, very recognizable names, and I've actually started my own practice doing this sort of stuff. So really excited to be here, and hopefully some of what I'm talking about will be of relevance and uh, help to all of your viewers. Excellent. So let's get into it. A practice owner owns a physical therapy practice or some healthcare business, and they're looking to potentially sell their practice. They might, they'll probably find a broker or advisor, or they maybe are competent enough or confident enough to just go into the negotiations themselves. When should they find an attorney? When should they source a law firm or a specialist, or should they just yes. use any attorney? Like, let's just start there. Let's jump off. So there's obviously a balancing act to be played out here as with many things in life. And the balancing act is this attorneys cost money and you as a seller want to be cognizant of the funds that you're spending on the sell side costs that you're going to incur. And so ideally you want your lawyer engaged at the very beginning. There's a lot of things that will play out in that process that you want to set in the right tone. And so ideally, you want them at the very beginning, but you need to balance that as it relates to the cost that you're going to incur in getting your lawyer involved at the very beginning. So practically speaking, being pragmatic about this, I think it's when you've identified a buyer who's shown a real and legitimate interest in your business, who's done their own due diligence just from a commercial perspective, has met with you, asked you the right questions, and you've verified the legitimacy of their interest to the point where you've now gotten to perhaps it's time to put a letter of intent together that actually formalizes the nature of the discussions that we've had in the transaction that we want to do. And so I don't think it's at a time when you have, let's say, dozens of potential suitors. I think it's when you've whittled them down to maybe one or two. And that's when you want to get your lawyer involved. So 
your lawyer will be really helpful in guiding the process, helping you through the transaction from start to finish, and setting the tone right off the bat with a letter of intent or a term sheet that will set out high-level terms for the sale. And obviously, this is not legal advice. You know, you're going to have to retain Sam or another attorney if you're watching or listening. We're yeah. trying to provide value and, and help and education in this process. We have had other M&A transaction attorneys on the show, and they've said similar things, which is like, like it's probably the best idea to find an attorney or and or law firm at the point of LOI. So meaning a letter of intent. So one or more buyers are submitting a non-binding offer to you for your practice. Yes. Some outline of price and terms. And before you sign that, it would probably be best to have a specialist M&A attorney review it and make sure that there's no big red flags or, I mean, at least so that they understand the verbiage of the LOI, because then there's going to be a lot of that that's going to then carry into due diligence and the potential purchase agreement if you and your practice and, and your team get to that point. So what are some of the other considerations at this stage of the game? Yeah. And actually, Dave, you touched on something that is really relevant. So a lot of people think, oh, it's a non-binding LOI. So, you know, not a big deal right now. I'll get more concerned about things when they're binding on me. But the reality that I've seen in participating in these transactions is irrespective of whether a document that you and your prospective buyer sign that is non-binding, irrespective of that, two things typically happen in an LOI. Number one, the non-binding things actually end up being persuasive in the way that the transaction plays out in the end. So notwithstanding that there's a term that says, you know, it's non-binding that I'm going to buy your business for $5 million, there's a very good chance that at the end of the day, you will be stuck with that $5 million number because that's what the expectation is of the parties heading into the next set of transactions and the discussion. So I wouldn't put a lot of stock on this concept of something being non-binding and not being concerning. It's still relevant. If it's in writing, we should make sure that it aligns with your expectation going forward. And the other thing is, typically in LOIs these days, there will be both binding and non-binding provisions. So you know, there will be likely a binding exclusivity clause, notwithstanding that the rest of the LOI may be non-binding. So obviously the things that are binding even more relevant to make sure that you get vetted through proper legal counsel who understands these transactions. Yeah, for sure. And I know we kind of said it, but in my opinion, even though I'm on the, I'm on the buy side, so I'm not selling a practice right now. I have a practice. I'm, I'm not, you know, not looking to sell, but I do think it would be a mistake if you went to go sell your practice and did not have formal legal representation and just know that buyers are typically with. So for us, our legal bill is probably going to be bigger, bigger or larger because we're going to be the side that's drafting the documents. We can get into that. And right. therefore the sellers, the practice owners watching or listening will typically have a, probably a lower legal bill because the buy side is drafting the yeah. documents. There was another practice owner uh, last year on the show, Dean Volk, and he described, so he sold his his two location practice to a corporate. He had a friend of, or someone in the family who was an attorney. I can't recall like what specialization, but it, it worked out for him. He Good. had the family attorney who is not a specialist like you look over the documents, make sure he was not being taken advantage of. And it worked out for him and he didn't you know have any issues. And I would say he's probably in a rare class of situations where that actually occurs. And so I'm just saying like, it's probably a legal mistake if you are trying to save a few bucks 
and not retain an attorney or a law firm early on, because sometimes there could be things in the LOI, like you said, that kind of carry into the rest of the process. Yes. It's very likely that, and this is, again, my experience, it's very likely that engaging the right practitioner to help and the right advisors in a whole to help will end up in the long run saving you on the costs that you're trying to avoid by not engaging those people. So I'll give you examples. And, and actually, it's interesting comment, Dave, where you said, like, you know, if you engage the family attorney in it, there is no issues. But the question about no issues, you know, it takes time for you to determine whether there are issues. And it also depends on the actual circumstances and context. So in one instance, perhaps there's no issues. In another instance, there could be many issues. So I'm not even sure whether I could confirm right now that there are no issues. I think it takes time for things to, to unfold after a buyer takes over a business. And I'm not sure how, how much time's passed. But anyways, that all decide. Yeah, so there will be things that are specialized within this type of M&A transaction that will be within the field of knowledge of someone who's actually specialized in this. A good example of that would be reps and warranties and how you walk through reps and warranties as a seller. So as a seller, your buyer will want you to promise to them certain things that they're going to codify in the contract as a representation or warranty of the seller. And M&A lawyers are well-versed in the customary reps and warranties that you're going to give, the type of carve-outs that are available, the type of exceptions that you can give, the limitations that you can place on those, the timelines that apply. So there's a number of things that are very specialized within this field that you would traditionally include or customarily want to include in a an sale sale agreement that may or may not be within you know the knowledge or experience skill set of someone who's like say a family attorney or criminal lawyer or some other type of attorney that doesn't do this day in day out. That's one thing. The other is that there is things to be gained by virtue of engaging someone who does this day in day out because, for example, efficiency. So they've seen these types of agreements over and over and over. And so it's not going to take them hours and hours to get up to speed because it's very clear to them how this contract is to be laid out, what things are out of place, what things are correctly stated, generally speaking, and, and expected. So you might, believe it or not, you might end up actually paying more through an attorney who's not as qualified, even if they're cheaper, because it takes them longer to work through the documents and potentially negotiate it. And all the while, it might actually delay your transaction. So there's a lot of things that are at play in a transaction like this. And I don't know if looking at just the cost, like the hourly rate of one lawyer versus another is the be and end all of how you determine who to use. Yeah. Can, for anyone that's uh, in the audience that does is not aware, can you just define a little bit of reps and warranties and indemnifications in regards to the whole process? And I did mention, you and I tried to record this before. We had a little bit of issue with the recording. Yeah. But on that, I think we said like, Typically, like the sales purchase agreement, it could be 10 pages, 40 pages, whatever, but typically like around half of it is going to be reps and warranties and indemnification. So for practice yes. owners watching or listening, can you give a little bit of a description of what that is and, and why yeah. it might be so lengthy in the uh, purchase agreement? Yeah. So the representation and warranties in a nutshell are promises that the seller is giving the buyer and that are inducing the buyer to buy that business for the purchase price stated. In other words, you're telling the buyer, hey, here's how my practice is. And I'll, I'll dive, I dive into what I'm talking about when I say here's how it is, but here's how my practice is. And if I'm wrong about this, if I've stated something incorrectly, 
then I acknowledge that that wasn't fair to you, buyer. And I'll probably be responsible to pay you any losses that you've incurred because I stated something incorrectly. So examples of this, and you know, it depends on whether you've got an asset sale or a share sale, but generally speaking, there will be very broad reps and warranties about the practice itself, how many employees it has, whether you're taking employees on or not, what kind of lease arrangements are in place, what kind of material contracts apply, whether there's any litigation that's outstanding, whether you're dealing with a company or a sale that has a creditor in the background that we need to deal with. So there's encumbrances on the assets or the shares. There will be a whole litany of this. And so the reason why it's so long, why it might take up at least half the agreement is because it really is a description of the current state of that business on the day of signing and then on the day of closing. So it just requires that because that's we're talking about business as a whole and all the elements of the business. Right. In terms of some of the reps and warranties and identification, can you remind me and the audience for that component of the process, which of that is describing like if you're representing a practice and we're going to buy it and we're saying like, okay, in the reps and warranties and identification, we wanted to state with these clauses that whatever had occurred before the date of the close, like whatever happened in the past. So if there's a month ago, a patient got burned by a hot pack in a physical therapy office, and maybe that litigation has not even surfaced yet or whatever, yeah. like whatever historical date of an issue that has not been either disclosed in due diligence or maybe has not even come up yet. My side, the buy side, we want that to list like whatever has happened before the data closes, the responsibility and the, the responsibility or the issue of the seller. And then whatever yes. happens after the, the date of close is now on us. Does it depend on if it's an asset sale versus a, a stock sale? Do you usually agree with what I just said, or you're on yes. the sell side here and you're going to protect your client? And so you want them to minimize their risk of like potential litigation if something pops up like from a month or two ago before the data close. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So what you stated is the customary position of the parties in a transaction like that. So Typically, the seller, because it's in operation of the business up to the closing date, the seller will be responsible for liabilities that are incurred prior to the and up to the closing date. And the idea, the principle or policy behind that is, well, you're in charge of this business. If there's a lawsuit relating to you know, how you conducted the business, it's because that's how you, the seller, conducted the business through your, yourself or through your representatives. And Perhaps you ought not to have done that, but why should I, as the buyer, be responsible for those types of things that were caused by you? And then the buyer typically will say, and then the minute I come into possession of this business and I start operating it, well, obviously, you should be now left off the hook because it's now within my field of responsibility. This is the customary approach. Very little of these things end up being customary. It's all negotiated. So absolutely, as a seller, I could say like, look, this is the purchase price. It's a kind of like a fire sale as is where is sale because I want out. But I'm doing that because I want out. I don't want to have you come at me, you know, a year after and say, well, what's this all about? Like, I just want out. So I'm giving you this price and you have the benefit of this price, which is much lower than let's say market or what I think is market because I'm also asking you to buy it on an as is where is basis such that you don't have the ability to come at me if there was something prior to closing. So it's definitely negotiated, but I wouldn't be too concerned as a seller or a buyer if it ends up in that default position that you initially suggested, because that's typically where it does end up. That's a fair allocation of risk between parties. 
Got it. So you will still negotiate or ab- advocate for your client, the practice owner on the sell side for some of those favorable terms, even though you might end up somewhere in default, which is like what we want. And that's usually what, as the buyers, that's what we're going to kind of draft up in the first draft of the sales purchase agreement before you start, you know, redlining it. Yeah, I think it's very, very contextual. It depends on all the terms that have been agreed to, depends on the diligence and what it uncovers, and it depends on the specific reps and warranties and what we're talking about. So it's very contextual, but yeah, the default position they described wouldn't be too concerning if that was the end result. Yeah, now the example that you were giving in a practice where you're saying, let's say the practice owner, you're saying a fire sale, it's as is. And if let's say we were to buy this hypothetical practice, now we would be on the hook for anything in the past. Let's just say if if it was as is, and then with the reps and warranties or indemnification, now we are assuming that risk. And you're saying, well, it's a fire sale. So we priced in, the price is so low, it's almost like you're pricing in some of that historical risk that could surface in the next quarter or two. Like who knows? Right. Like a, a patient gets burned, a patient tripped in the parking lot or in the office and fell like, Exactly. A month ago or two months ago or something. And so now we are assuming that risk. So that could kind of be priced in to the whole deal, like the actual price and terms and some of these other clauses, which are part of the terms and not necessarily the price, but it could all be packaged in. And that's exactly what's happening is that the buyer is saying, okay, I understand. So you're saying I'm taking on pre-closing risk. And I, as the buyer, I'm going to try to quantify what that pre-closing risk is. And obviously, I, as the buyer, am I going to do a lot more diligence to get really comfortable that there is no skeletons in your closet pre-closing. But at the end of the day, for sure, it gets packaged into that purchase price. And to be fair, it will get packaged into the purchase price if it's not a fire sale. Even when the allocation of risk is as is, it's the warranties that you're all able to get that will help define the purchase price at the end. So it's all contextual. You will, as the buyer, for example, and then as a seller on the other side, you will determine what you're getting. And what I mean by what you're getting includes the actual provisions that induce you to enter into the transaction as a whole. And that will then help guide you to what the purchase price should be, unless you've agreed to that upfront. I should add one thing though, Dave, there is, notwithstanding that we've got this concept of taking on all the risk prior to you know, closing, there will almost always be reps and warranties that you as a seller will give and be required to give even in a fire sale. So a great example of those, usually you'll see these show up in a purchase agreement called and called out as fundamental representations and warranties. And fundamental reps, there's no magic as to what they are. It could be, again, it's negotiated, but typically what you'll see an M&A lawyer agree to is things like one, the contract is obviously binding on you as a seller. So you can't later come out and said, I actually didn't even have the ability to sell this business as a whole. Two, that you actually own the things that you said you own. So again, you can't come back and say like someone else owns this. I'm sorry. So the reason we call them fundamental is they're so basic in going to the root of the transaction as a whole that there is no concept of as is, where is, because you can't even sell something like that. That would just be almost borderline fraudulent if you were saying, I'm not even able to give you these types of reps. Got it. What else in this process could be either a legal mistake or maybe things that you've seen buyers try to do, whether it's, whether it's bad behavior, something unprofessional, whether it's trying to get in, you know, maybe too greedy or too 
overzealous of requests or or, or additional yeah. clauses or things like that? What what else that you yeah. have seen to then protect your clients on the sell side, the practice owners that are selling their practice? That's awesome. So maybe I can flag two things that we could jump into. One is just diligence that you're going to see that the buyer do. And the second is information that's disclosed. So let's let's just really quickly jump into diligence. So one of the legal mistakes that I see is a seller getting overzealous in the process of sale, such that they're selling a business that hasn't had a lot of formal organization of the processes created. So what I mean by that is the business, when it's put up for sale, should be really clean and organized from a governance standpoint so that when you disclose it to the buyer and you disclose what they're buying, it's clear to them exactly what they're getting and there's no ambiguity. So for example, if you have really important partners in this business that you guys work with together, there should be a partnership arrangement, an operating agreement, a shareholder agreement that very clearly stipulates who holds how many shares, what rights each of these people have, and when you're the buying as a buyer, who you're buying from and what shares you're getting from whom so that you know exactly what that looks like. If you haven't formalized these things and you go to sell the business, what will end up happening is the buyer's legal counsel will flag to you all of the areas of ambiguity or uncertainty. And then potentially those areas of ambiguity, uncertainty, because they represent risk to the buyer, will be used against you as a seller to drive down the purchase price. So by engaging the right advisors and actually organizing your business up front, you're actually maximizing the value of the business to be sold. And, and I, although it's cumbersome and although it's really boring, and sometimes you know I know that business owners are just head down trying to operate their business and succeed, some of this stuff really will help maximize the value when you sell it. So take a little bit of time up front before jumping into the sale process. The second comment I made about disclosure. So in that process, the buyer is going to ask you for some information. I think you as a seller should be well aware of who you're disclosing this information to and whether these people represent competitors of yours or could be somehow taking information that if this transaction does not close, would not be helpful for you to have out there in the public field. So of course, there's probably going to be an NDA. There's going to be confidentiality agreements that apply. But what I tell my clients is the power of NDAs, are it's very difficult to prove a breach of confidential information being released. You'd have to prove who released it, when, how, all that information, that, and not to mention you'd have to pursue that lawsuit in the first place. So what I recommend instead is be aware of who you're disclosing information to. If you can disclose it in tranches, and the tranches are aligned with the stage of the transaction and the legitimacy of going forward with that particular buyer. If you can do that with that buyer, even better. And just be aware that once your confidential information, maybe your operating numbers, your financial numbers, once that gets out there, it's likely out there. So just be aware of that. So that that's another thing that I think as a seller, you should be aware of. That's awesome. Uh, we'll kind of run out of time here, but we'll definitely have you back on the show, Sam. What's a place whether Email, website, LinkedIn. What's a good place for the audience to reach out to you and connect further if they want to chat with you, learn more about your services, who you help specifically, and if they would be the right fit to potentially work with you? That's awesome, Dave. Phone number 1-403-608-9061. And you can actually add me on WhatsApp and message me that way. I have a website, sklegal.ca, which has all my contact information on it and also has some information about the scope of services. and. Um, 
typically every day or so and every couple of days or so I post content on Instagram. So it'd be Sam underscore my last name, K-H-A-J-E-E-I. And that content is really, it's just free content that's helping entrepreneurs and business owners kind of operate their businesses. And in this case, maximize sale value in an M&A. Awesome, Sam. Thanks so much for your time. And like I said, we'll have you back with some other legal topics and uh, conversations and probably or hopefully some anonymous stories that practice owners can learn from. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Guys, if you find this valuable or insightful, subscribe to the Dave Kittle Show on YouTube as well as iTunes and Spotify. We'll catch you next time here on the show. Bye now. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.